Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 99. Before we get into today's questions, big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com and they make electrolyte, electrolyte supplements that you can match to your individual sweat sodium concentration. So if you are somebody that loses a lot of sodium in your sweat, like me, then you would get their high sodium electrolyte supplement. And if you are somebody that is on the low or medium side, then you would get those respective supplements. And uh, then you can match that to your uh, hydration intake, your sweat rate, and so on. And uh, basically make sure that your hydration plan is uh, really up to scratch. And Precision Hydration has all the tools to help you do that with their online sweat test that will, as a result, spit out your race hydration plan for you. So go and check that out on precisionhydration.com. And if you want to buy any other electrolytes, you can use the promo code show 15 to get 15% off your order. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Many of you probably know Roka mostly from their wetsuits and trisuits and so on. But uh, as I talked about before, uh, it's important to mention that Roka really has been making massive headways in uh, the prescription glasses and sunglasses categories. And one of the recent innovations that they added is that you can now do a vision test right on your computer and uh, get a prescription right then and there and then order your your glasses so that's super cool definitely check that out and uh, check out the many styles that roca has to offer all of them come with uh, the anti-geco anti-slip technology that makes sure that you cannot shake the glasses off your head and and all the other bells and whistles that uh, roca have uh, have added to their glasses you can get 20 percent off your order on roca.com forward slash tts now on today's question, which is from uh, Roman in uh, Chile, who writes, Hi Michael, I'm a pro triathlete from Chile. I'm a long-term listener of your podcast, and it helps me a lot as a coach and an athlete. I have two questions for your Q&A episodes. Uh, one, I've been tested with a VO2 max of 83 milliliters per kilogram per minute. I understand that having a high VO2 max is very useful to develop more power, but I would like to know what the other consequences of having a VO2 max, a high VO2 max are. When I do high intensity training and races, I really need an incredibly high amount of carbs. Is it related to a faster metabolism? And two, for my own training and for my athletes, I am really in favor of polarized training. But listening to episode 169 with Sebastian Weber, we can see that training at sweet spot, which corresponds to medium intensity, is key to lowering VLA max, the maximum glycolytic capacity. How should we deal with these two uh, theories? Does sweet spot training and race-based training have uh, a utility for triathletes with an already low VLA max? Thank you for your help with, your, with my questions. Keep on doing such a great podcast. I really enjoy your Q&A, but even more your interview with really interesting guests. Right. Thank you, Roman. Uh, first things first, for the listeners that uh, haven't listened yet to episode 169 that uh, Roman references, go and do that with Sebastian Weber to understand all the basics around VO2 max and VLA max and also anaerobic threshold how it's determined uh, by mostly by vo2 max and vla max so the aerobic capacity and 
not the anaerobic capacity in a way uh, VLA max really is the glycolytic capacity but for triathletes we can for the most part ignore the creatine phosphate part of the anaerobic system so we could say that VLA max really is your anaerobic capacity to simplify things a little bit so I'll link to that episode 169 and also Sebastian talked about these topics more recently in a two-part interview that we did in episodes 237 and 238 that I'll link to as well in the episode description now to get on to your first question you have been tested at 83 mils for your vo2 max that's really really good you'll find a lot of the top professional athletes we're talking the the athletes at kona uh, that are significantly lower than that uh, for example a quick google search search revealed to me that uh, cam worth was at between 75 to 80 in his vo2 max for cycling the exact number was not revealed in late summer 2018 uh, that was in an article from triathlete.com that i'll also link to from which i found uh, those numbers and i mean he's setting by course records so that tells you something another example that i tend to come back to often is frank shorter who was the olympic gold medalist for the marathon in 1972 and got the silver in 1976 and his vo2 max for running which uh, i should mention generally elicits a slightly higher vo2 max than cycling was 72 so full 10 mils lower than yourself on the bike i think actually that that 82 is what you've been testing at sorry 83 on the bike uh, although i'm not sure maybe it was running that you tested that either way without knowing the vo2 max of frank shorter's competitors we can say with very strong confidence that he beat many competitors that had significantly higher vo2 max than his own because 72 is not high for uh, an elite marathoner by any stretch which leads us to an important takeaway on vo2 max which is that high vo2 max is like having a ticket to the lottery it puts you in a position where you can possibly win but it is absolutely no guarantee as frank shorter's competitors would have found out maybe somebody with a vo2 max of let's say 80 uh, thought that well i'm surely going to beat shorter i have a much better vo2 max than him but that's not the case the the thing though is that if you don't have a high enough vo2 max at the professional level that's what we're talking about here you don't even have the ticket to the lottery so there's no way you're going to to win but that's the same really if we're talking about age group sports like if you you need a certain vo2 max it's obviously lower than the professionals need but to be in contention for the podium you are going to need a certain vo2 max but the highest vo2 max is not necessarily going to win Put another way, when we look at VO2 max across the spectrum from people with VO2 max in the low 30s to those outliers in the high 80s or even low 90s, there is absolutely a strong correlation between VO2 max and endurance performance, a very strong correlation. But within a more homogenous subgroup on this large scale, so let's say, for example, within the group of professional male triathletes in Kona, uh, then the correlation gets pretty weak if it even exists i would assume that in kona you would have uh, a lot of the athletes would be between 75 to 85 but you might have a few that are between 70 and 75 as well uh, so uh, maybe you would have somebody who is higher than 85 but probably not many if any and the reason that uh, within a homogenous subgroup that you can't really use vo2 max for any sort of prediction of performance is that uh, differences in how well you can sustain a high percentage of vo2 max uh, becomes much more important differences in exercise economy uh, and so on and actually uh, that 
aspect about sustaining a high percentage of VO2 max has really has a lot to do with VLA max that we'll get onto uh, in a bit. But uh, in your question, you say that you know that VO2 max is important for producing power, and this is very true. And I want to emphasize this point, although you obviously already know it, but there is this myth during the rounds that you hear uh, at races, you hear people talking about it, you hear it on the internet, etc., where people say that VO2 max is not important if you're doing long endurance events like half and full Ironmans. And that is absolute rubbish. No matter what the endurance event is, even in a 100-mile ultra run in the mountains which might take 15 to 30 hours depending on your level vo2 max is important relatively speaking it does become less important in really long events that is true but it is still very very important uh, it's in the name vo2 max is the aerobic capacity or the maximum aerobic capacity and any long endurance event is an aerobic event so even though we're not working near our maximum aerobic capacity then a higher maximum aerobic capacity allows us to work at a higher sub-maximal intensity. So for everybody listening to this episode, please always remember this because it is very important. No matter which endurance event you're doing, VO2 max is always important. Don't, don't listen to those myths that VO2 max would not be important for Ironman. Then the actual question that you had is about the consequences or perhaps the considerations of having a high VO2 max. And you're spot on that metabolism and energy requirements is uh, an important one. So for example, I looked at some test data I have from different athletes to give some examples. And I looked at somebody with a cycling VO2 max of 75 and uh, they their weight was uh, very low 70s in the low 70s in kilograms they will burn close to 1300 calories at 80 percent of vo2 max which is a very solid intensity but it was below threshold for this athlete and on the other hand somebody with basically the same or a very similar body weight but a vo2 max of 50 will burn just above 800 calories at 80 percent of their vo2 max which again is below threshold for the athlete. So a difference there in almost 500 calories uh, per hour, I should have said. So that's those calorie numbers are per hour for the same relative intensity, 80% of VO2 max in both cases. So one of the very negative consequences of a high VO2 max is uh, there's a very strong correlation between VO2 max and uh, your grocery bill, I would assume, <laughs> at least in the amount of energy that you have to get in yourself, the amount of uh, of food you have to eat consume and uh, a significant amount of time spent eating and preparing food as well and of course uh, during training as well this is something that you need to consider much more carefully than somebody with a very low vo2 max so even your endurance workouts for example you will be using a large amount of calories and even though at lower intensities of course a greater proportion of those calories will be from fat rather than carbohydrates generally speaking it's not recommended to put yourself into a very deep caloric deficit by waiting until after your long workout, if you have a long endurance workout, when you are already in a two or 3,000 calorie deficit, depending on the length of your ride. Uh, that's, that's really not good for recovery. Uh, the exception to this rule might be that there might be some workouts where you strategically train in a low glycogen state. And then you withhold uh, energy intake or at least carbohydrate in intake. But even then, maybe it might be smart, especially for somebody with your VO2 max and capacity to burn energy, to take on some fats and proteins to offset the large energy expenditure and not put yourself in that deep caloric energy deficit. And in addition to that, these types of workouts, the 
low glycogen workouts are not something that you should do all the time and actually in a week and a half in episode 248 i will discuss this in detail with professor john hawley but for now suffice it to say that you probably want to do it if you do them once or twice per week during certain periods of the season not all the time so to summarize this point uh, you just burn a lot of energy when working out and your easy intensity at your easy intensity will burn as much or more as what some regular age group athletes will burn when they are going really really hard for them so that is just very important to remember and you need to fuel accordingly within and outside of your workouts another very very important consideration for athletes with a high vo2 max and this i think is much more overlooked than the the first point the one on metabolism and energy requirements but this point i really want to drive home with a high VO2 max, you can put your body under a very high mechanical stress, whether we're talking about cycling or running or swimming, and especially running, uh, I would say, is the most risky one, obviously. So basically, what I mean is that at a low relative intensity, you can be running at paces that are and that are just let's say you're running at a 250 marathon pace, essentially when you're when you're almost jogging, not jogging necessarily, but you're running very controlled and then when you're actually going hard when you're doing your intervals then just the forces that the impact forces on your body are just really really high so from an injury prevention standpoint you need to be very very careful with this and uh, basically you want to make sure that you do a lot of strength and conditioning work for one thing to make sure that you have uh, the chassis to be able to support the engine that you have and this is something that is very often neglected and and especially i feel in high level age groupers that have a good vo2 max but ignore strength and conditioning but i think for for professionals as well it's probably it probably used to be much more of an issue than it is now now i think that the knowledge is out there but don't ignore strength and conditioning and the higher your vo2 max the more important it becomes so that you build a body that can sustain the mechanical stress that you place on it because you will be putting a much 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 higher mechanical stress on the body than somebody with a vo2 max of 50 or 60 so so that's that's super important and in addition to the strength and conditioning uh, athletes with a high vo2 max should generally do a lot of their training at a lower relative intensity than less well-trained athletes so to give you an example somebody with a pretty low or moderate vo2 max might well do a lot of their uh, in training at 60 to 65 percent of vo2 max and be completely fine yeah, that could be their low intensity training but for athletes with a high vo2 max uh, if you're doing a lot of training at 60 to 65 percent of vo2 max the power output will, will be very significant the pace on the run will be very significant so your easy training should probably be quite a bit easier than that to to minimize the risk of injury and uh, then i want to bring up one final thing that uh, i would consider at least with current knowledge a myth and it is less widespread than the vo2 max is not important for ironman myth but it's still important and i bring this up because there was an article by alex hutchinson on sweat science late 2019 that triggered a lot of discussion i was quite intrigued myself it was about whether a higher vo2 max can actually be directly related to a lower gross efficiency or, or exercise economy those are not quite the same but they are related and uh, i should say that i I love uh, Alex Hutchinson's work, uh, but I think this time uh, either he was 
a bit off the mark it could be and uh, or he just didn't convey the message the right way uh, because the headline and subheading of the article is why a higher v2 max isn't always better improving your max aerobic power may come at the cost of worse efficiency a new study finds but uh, actually when you i will link to alex's article in the show notes and from there you can find the original study i can link to the original study as well but uh, it's ah, well it's pretty heavy i probably won't do that you can find it from alex's article if you want to either way i went through this study and that's not what they found at all uh it's a group of researchers that have done some very interesting simulations and in vivo measurements in trained and untrained cyclists and they've found uh, some interesting uh, proteins in the mitochondria that uh, basically what they're saying is that due to these uh, my, these proteins creating a sort of threshold called a complex one threshold uh, there is a, there is at 55 to 65 percent of heart rate maximum you start to become less efficient, but that's at a very low intensity already. So basically, your uh, easy jogging or your uh, at least your endurance pace, then you're already starting to become less efficient. So I don't know. That's all well and good. It may be true. They had five cyclists, I think, in the study. It's not a big study, so that's a whole rabbit hole that I'm not going to even try to go down now uh, to try to deduce whether that's something there's something to that or not but even if that is the case then nowhere in this study do they even try to establish a relationship between an individual's vo2 max and their efficiency so they're not saying that somebody with a vo2 max of 70 has a lower efficiency than a VO, somebody with a vo2 max of 50 that's not at all what the study is about and if we dig into the wider literature on gross efficiency we basically see a lot of conflicting results so again no use trying to draw a conclusion on that other than that i think it's very clear that there is no not sufficient evidence to support the idea that a higher vo2 max is associated with a lower gross efficiency or exercise economy at all so that's uh, something in case you read that article because it was a popular article uh, on twitter among other places so i just wanted to bring that up and say that that could be something you might think be a, would be a consequence but I don't think that that's something that we need to concern ourselves with based on the evidence that is available. So that's part one of the question. And just to summarize the things that you should consider, you already mentioned uh, the energy requirements and the metabolism. Yes, absolutely super important. Then building the chassis as well to support the engine that you have. That becomes the, the bigger the engine, the better the chassis needs to be. Otherwise, if you put a ferrari engine in a little fiat then that's maybe going to break the car that's the analogy that you can you can look at it you need to have a chassis that can support the the engine that you have so yeah that's uh, and also train at a relatively lower intensity than athletes with with a lower vo2 max to make sure that you minimize uh, minimize the impact forces and uh, and just the mechanical uh, mechanical stress that you're putting on the body now the second part of the question is about polarized training compared to sweet spot training and just to reread this part of the question you write for my own training and for my athletes i am really in favor of polarized training but listening to episode 169 with sebastian weber we can see that training at sweet spot which corresponds to a medium intensity is key to lowering vla max how should we deal with these two theories has sweet spot and does sweet spot and race training have utility for triathletes with an already low vla max so this really comes down to knowing what you want to work on and how to accomplish that the idea behind using sweet spot training or moderate intensity 
intensities for lowering VLA max is that you need to be at a certain intensity, usually I quoted as around 70 to 75% of VO2 max to really start to bring in a large pool of fast twitch fibers to work alongside slow twitch fibers. And it's only when your fast twitch fibers are working that you can actually train them. So when you do sweet spot intervals, for example, you we would assume that you are at 70-75% of your 2 max or higher. And let's say you're doing something like three times 30 minutes at sweet spot, then and you are because of the intensity, you are engaging those fast twitch fibers or some at least part of them. What happens is that you put those fast twitch fibers through 90 minutes of primarily aerobic work. So over time, with this type of training, you get these fibers to be better at producing energy aerobically and to be more resistant to fatigue so they can keep doing it for a long time. And this is particularly the case with the 2A uh, fibers, which are more the sort of in-between type between slow twitch and the really fast, uh, fast twitch fibers. You can get the same effect of this sweet spot training I just described by using slightly lower intensities, but also using a low cadence alongside that slightly lower intensity. Still moderate, but uh, sort of uh, semi-low, well, I guess moderate. Let's, let's leave it at that, moderate. Moderate intensity, lower than sweet spot, but using low cadence. So the torque then becomes high enough with the lower cadence, the force that you put through the pedals becomes high enough that your slow twitch fibers aren't strong enough to produce that torque on their own. The fast twitch fibers have to come in to help, despite the fact that the overall power isn't that high because your cadence is low. So personally, I generally use this method as my primary means of working on VLA Max, because if you can get a similar effect this way, but ultimately at a lower power output, so a lower metabolic cost, then why wouldn't you? Uh, but I also do use sweet spot training for several reasons. Uh, first, in less well-trained athletes, I have actually seen VO2 max increases after sweet spot training blocks at the same time as also seeing VLA max reductions. So that's pretty awesome for inexperienced athletes. Second, uh, in many cases, sweet spot training is more specific for racing. For example, 7.3 race power for many athletes will be in the sweet spot range. And also, uh, sweet spot training can be a nice lead into then uh, moving to a bit of threshold work or even uh, higher intensities like VO2 max. So uh, jumping, for example, directly from something that is quite a bit lower than uh, than sweet spot, somewhere in the tempo region, to VO2 max uh, might feel less comfortable for the athlete than jumping from sweet spot to VO2 max because they they have built up that sort of familiarity with breathing a bit harder and, and so on through the sweet spot work. Perhaps most importantly, though, the reason why I also include sweet spot work, we can never know in advance exactly what will happen when we impose a stimulus. We're always making best educated guesses. So I think it is super important not to be too confident of yourself and what you're doing and put all your eggs in one basket. Rather, maximize the probability of things going right. So I think that low cadence, moderate tempo kind of intervals uh, will lower this athlete's VLA, VLA max, and I think it does so at a lesser cost than the sweet spot intervals. So I'm going to use that as my primary means. But I'm also going to mix up the stimulus a little bit and throw in a few sweet spot workouts through this block of training as the secondary type of workout. And hopefully the combination of these types of workouts will give us a really good chance of seeing the desired adaptations of a lower VLA max. But when deciding what type of training to give an athlete, 
if I know that the athlete has a low VLA max already and also that they don't have a big muscular endurance limiter, then I'm probably not going to give them much sweet spot training or moderate training, but rather focus on a more polarized approach, as you say. But first, uh, to make it clear, I say that I won't give them much, but I will give them some sweet spot training or moderate intensity training, strength endurance training, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and uh, this is over the course of the year it will accumulate a bit it won't be the priority but they will have done uh, some amount a fair amount of moderate intensity training just because the reason is that i think that over the course of a season you don't want to completely neglect any type of training you want a well-rounded program which is focused on your main uh, the main things that you want to improve but you don't want to completely neglect anything everything has its place and you have to find the right amounts of the different different ingredients even with a low vla max the muscular endurance requirements of sweet spot training uh, for example are not just metabolic but also biomechanical so that's one reason to do uh, to do sweet spot training or moderate training despite having a low VLA max to work on the, the biomechanical side of muscular endurance. Plus, if you neglect doing quote-unquote VLA max reducing work for a very extended period of time, it's quite possible based on your uh, predisposition, predisposition that it might actually start to increase as you never give those fast switch fibers the challenge of working aerobically for an extended duration. So to give an example, for an athlete with a low VLA max, we might, might focus on uh, this type of moderate training, sweet spot training, for maybe two to three weeks out of 10. Whereas for an athlete with a high VLA max, where we want to lower it, this type of work may be the focus for six to seven weeks out of 10. But also in that case, we can't do it for 10 weeks out of 10 because we don't want to completely neglect all other training. So more polarized training is what I would describe for uh, an athlete that where we're really focused on VO2 max improvements. For example, this is often the case for athletes that already have a low VLA max. So, uh, so the polarized training could be the majority of the time. But I also want to emphasize that this doesn't mean that they're smashing all out intervals for seven or eight weeks before going into two or three weeks of moderate training. Uh, absolutely not. Uh, so let's say that we do have a polarized period of eight weeks uh, of training and our target there is VO2 max improvements. Then the first couple of weeks are probably a lead up to some really hard intervals. So we might do a bit of pure threshold work to work on staying at intensity at a fairly high intensity for an extended duration and bridge the gap between the work we have been doing previously and the work that is to come, but then also add in some very short bouts of high or very high intensity, but nothing that will smash the athlete, that will be very, very difficult or very, very challenging. It should all be doable. Then we might move into two or four weeks where we're hitting some really hard work, really hard focused intervals where the athlete really needs to suffer quite a bit and is really challenged through those workouts and then we ease up uh, on uh, on that interval work we still keep intensity in there but in a slightly less taxing format more maintenance and maybe bring back a bit of threshold work to to make sure that we can uh, or tr try to see if we can uh, bring the threshold to a higher percentage of vo2 max that's one thing that i think works quite well quite often 
But the point there is, I don't want a period of longer than four weeks in most cases where the athlete is really, really on the edge in multiple uh, training sessions per week. And by the way, uh, for anybody who is not clear, when we're talking about this training period, polarized training, we still have the large majority, the vast majority of training is low intensity. But these intervals that I'm talking about are the key hard workouts of the week. So for somebody training, uh, let's say, three times per week on the swim and the bike and the run, they might do perhaps three or four interval sessions in across the different disciplines. Perhaps three would be the most common, but for advanced athletes, it might even be four. So uh, so that's that's basically the gist of it, that for a limited time, we do a lot of intervals, even though the, the total duration of, of work is largely low intensity. But despite the fact that the large, uh, the large majority of the work is low intensity, if we do too many weeks where the hard workouts that, that you would have every other day or so, if they are very, very hard, then we can't sustain that, uh, I think, mentally, if uh, nothing else, for more than, uh, than two to four weeks. That's, or for, for more than four weeks. That's why I keep that block, that really hard block, to between two and four weeks, depending on the athletes. And uh, a side note for an interesting discussion on VO2 max training, please tune in on Monday when I interview coach and physiologist Mark Pierce. And this is one of the topics that we cover with him. Now, regarding race-based training that you also mentioned in your question, I do think this is very important. And if we're talking Ironman or 7.3 race pace, uh, they will both be well below threshold so they can double nicely as VLA max reducing work. But even if they didn't have that effect, I would still include some race-based training in the training for any athlete, including athletes that already have a low VLA max for the following reasons. First, pacing practice, really important, especially for slightly newer athletes, but also, and especially importantly, confidence building and uh, psychological benefits of knowing that you've done training that in some ways simulates what you'll experience on race day. And then specificity. I do think that there's something to be said for building the engine first and focusing on specificity second. But since it isn't an either-or proposition, I believe that you can do both. You focus on the engine, but then you fine-tune the engine for the specific demands of your goal race by including race-specific training. And anecdotally, somebody like Dan Lodang, for example, who is the coach of Jan Ferdino and Anne Haug, would say that uh, this type of that race-based training improves exercise economy, specifically around race intensity, when you do that. And uh, so he calls it his economization phase. And in addition, I think that you just get your muscles used to certain rates of contraction and can increase the duration for which you can maintain those motor, motor patterns and contraction rates when you do these longer race-based intervals uh, at race power and race cadence. So, yeah, that is to say, I would include this type of training for any athlete, no matter if they have a low VLA max or not. But I don't think it's necessary to have a very long period of race-based training, especially for an experienced athlete. Quite often, it can be as little as two to three weeks or two to four weeks before taper, and then a little bit of race-based work during the taper as well. For less experienced athletes, I tend to make the race-based period a bit longer. And But this mostly is uh, not for physiological reasons, but to practice pacing and also for the mental, the psychological aspects and the confidence building of this type of training. So thank you, uh, Roman, for this question. I hope it uh, answers it. And uh, I really love these types of questions, as you can probably tell right up my alley. So really happy to uh, discuss it.
that's it for today keep sending in questions for future q a's to michael at scientifictriathlon.com and that's michael with a k you can find this q a and all previous q a's on scientifictriathlon.com and while you're there check out all the information about training plans and coaching services which if you want to improve your triathlon performance i would highly recommend on Monday, as mentioned, I interview coach and former British triathlon physiologist Mark Pierce in a very interesting training talk with where we discuss a lot of topics from VO2 max to periodization to polarized training, the lot. So stay subscribed. And if you are a big fan of the podcast, a rating and a review would be absolutely great. Finally, thank you to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test and get a hydration strategy for your next race. And use the promo code DEATTRIATHLONSHOW15 to get 15% off your order. And thank you to Roka for sponsoring the podcast. Go and check out their wetsuits, dry suits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. And get 20% off your order on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.